0: There has been such a big change over the past few decades, and it's the fact that from the highest ranks of the military to us here having this conversation, family is such a critical part of the story. Besides the fact that it's a nice thing to do, it's the right thing to do to take care of military families, I think that our leaders also realize that those service members who are going into harm's way... They can't concentrate if they know that their family isn't being taken care of. They can't focus if they know that their family doesn't have childcare, healthcare, health care, or even thinking in the worst case scenario, what will happen to them if I don't make it out of this alive? So I think the focus has really shifted and rightfully so.
1: Goose Creek Consulting. This is the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. That's Bessa Pinchotti, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Military Family Association, a private nonprofit where she leads a team of people focused on enhancing the quality of life for military families. The association was founded in 1969 during the middle of the Vietnam conflict as the Military Wives Association. It was founded by a group of spouses who were concerned about the well-being of friends who were widowed when their spouse died while serving in the American Armed Forces. Their efforts led to Congress passing a law signed by President Richard Nixon in September of 1972 that created the Survivors Benefits Plan, which provided income to survivors of service members who die on active duty. The association changed its name in 1984 to recognize the broader scope of its work. Today, NMFA serves members from all ranks of America's eight uniformed services, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Space Force, the Coast Guard, as well as the Commission Corps of the Public Health Service in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NMFA provides scholarships, camps, family-centered events, and is a leading voice for military families at the White House, in the Pentagon, and the halls of Congress. Bessa is a military spouse herself, who's in the unique position of both having been a military spouse and also a journalist who covered many stories that impacted military families during the heart of the wars in Iraq and Afghans. Her work gave her a unique perspective of someone who could see the challenges from both the inside and the outside both the big picture view and the impact in the living room. After more than 20 years and increasing turmoil in the world, we're gonna explore the tough job of being a military family member. When you sign up for the military, you're not just signing yourself up, but you're also signing up your entire family. It's a tough job that doesn't come with pay and comes with benefits of camaraderie, agility, and a chance to serve your country, along with the difficulties of deployments, frequent moves, and a loved one with any moment's notice can find themselves on the line. Hey, Bessa, thank you for uh, joining this conversation today. I'm really excited about the opportunity to talk about sort of an important topic. I think often, and it's probably not just with military spouses, it might be spouses in general or family members, but particularly in the military, you know, that idea that you're not just serving, but your whole family is serving is something that I don't think we always appreciate.
0: It's so true. It's kind of like when they tell you, when you get married, you're marrying the whole family and that goes outside of the military as well. You're at Thanksgiving with your spouse's entire family. Well, when you join the military, it is your whole family and all of your fellow service members' families too. You really do just join and serve right alongside them.
1: Yeah. And one of the one of the things that's always struck me is I think at least since certainly since I've been growing up, we've had a all volunteer force. And I think as somebody on the outside of it, you know, you don't really think about the sacrifice that children, families make. I, you know, I grew up with a lot of, um, in the Northern Virginia area with a lot of military families. And what I sort of thought about was, wow, this is cool. They get to live all sorts of places and they get to do all sorts of things. But I found out that it's, um, with all those benefits, there are a lot of tough challenges. So I wanted to start off by asking you just a little bit about the Military Wives Association, the predecessor, you know, sort of the Vietnam uh, War era, and how the Survivors Benefits Program came about.
0: Yeah, when you start to think about Vietnam era, it really was about wives, because it was male service members serving, and then their wives at home. And so what was happening in Vietnam is there were so many casualties, there was so much happening. And the wives were at home with their kids, holding down the fort. And then when those service members would die, they would be left high and dry. Most of them didn't have jobs. They didn't have careers. They were at home raising kids and managing a household. So what happened is a group of wives were sitting around their kitchen table and they were just saying, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Our friends are just being left to fend for themselves and we're going to do something about it. So at that time, they put on their heels, they put on their white gloves, and they decided to go to the Capitol and march door to door and explain what was happening. They talked about their friends, and they were determined to make a difference. They didn't have any experience except for what they were living and what they were seeing their friends go through. And with that, the survivor benefit plan was passed. They said, we have to do something about this. And they did. And those women sitting around that kitchen table, they inspire us every single day. We always think about them. We think about where those decisions are made. And there's such a parallel because that's where a lot of decisions are made to this day for military families when they're talking about, do we stay in military service? Do we get out? Do we continue to serve this country? Because those challenges that you're facing every single day are very real there's something that you're talking about over you know meatloaf and mashed potatoes with your family
1: yeah it's hard for me to imagine a time where you know spouses and families of people who served the country or really I, i think of any country would be left with nothing afterwards what was it did they just fall into the normal safety nets or what was happening to those people
0: I think truly the government, the Department of Defense, everyone was very focused on the mission. And the mission was in Vietnam at that time. And the families at home were very secondary. And at that time as well, it was a draft. It wasn't the all volunteer force that we have now. And so the conversation was really surrounding, you know, logistics and war and less so what was happening on the home front. Families weren't Uh, acknowledged in the way that they are now. There has been such a big change over the past few decades. And it's the fact that from the highest ranks of the military to us here having this conversation, family is such a critical part of the story. Besides the fact that it's a nice thing to do, it's the right thing to do to take care of military families. I think that our leaders also realize that those service members who are going into harm's way, they can't concentrate if they know that their family isn't being taken care of. They can't focus if they know that their family doesn't have child care, health care, or even thinking in the worst case scenario, what will happen to them if I don't make it out of this alive? So I think the focus has really shifted and rightfully so.
1: Where people have sort of realized that the people who serve can't focus on the mission if they're worried that they're... Families are not okay. You know, my dad was a Vietnam vet. I hadn't been born by the time that he served in the late 60s and the early early 70s. And, you know, one of the striking things, so it took, I probably was, I, I was 16 or 17 before he ever told me anything about Vietnam. He just didn't talk about it. But one of the early stories that I remember was hearing about the reaction that people had to service members and sort of the shock that some of their families had to the negative reaction. And another thing that he he said to me that really struck me was like, modern transportation made it really easy for you to go from a war zone to the home front that was very different. And people were struggling with all sorts of post traumatic stress. And he recently said to me, don't think the families weren't Dealing with post traumatic stress today as well, when you're thinking that something harmful could happen to your loved one at any moment, it really does change the the world for you, and it just makes me think that mental health is probably a focus, and you know all sorts of aspects along those lines.
0: It is. We talk about mental health. We talk about mental well being, financial well being community. These are all core issues for us because um, it's true. You know, The service member is going through what they're going through when they're on the front lines, when they're deployed, when they're on duty. And then the families at home are going on with their day-to-day life. And then sometimes when the service member comes home, it's really an interruption. They figured out how to do things, but the service member thinks they're coming home to what they left. But so much changes in the way that you have to adapt and deal with life. You're making new friends. You're in a new school. There's so many changes in that day to day. So we talk about mental well being a lot in community because we know that community is what supports that family's well being. Yeah, that kind of
1: um, acculturation shock that happens. You know, I think about all the you know movies or the TV shows that I've seen on. You know, people in the military, and they kind of like, for the most part, we, with maybe one exception that I know, the unit, which was a CBS show, they kind of leave out the family part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, it's such a central piece of it. I wanted to ask you just a little bit about you and sort of like your career, how you ended up becoming a military spouse, your career in journalism. And I'm just curious about what you learned from covering military families from the outside while also being
0: a part of one. Sure. So I actually grew up the daughter of an immigrant from Kosovo. I grew up in Texas and I spent all of my summers in Kosovo. And I didn't really know much about the U.S. military. Uh, My dad served in Kosovo, but it was for... The Serbian Yugoslav Army, which he didn't believe in. it was forced. So it wasn't something that we really talked about often. And when I was in college, the war in Kosovo started, and the u s. military came in and literally saved my family's lives. Their homes had burned down. I have cousins who died, um, you know, aunts and uncles who were severely injured in the war. The whole country has since been rebuilt. But for my family, the appreciation for the U.S. military is huge and for the whole country of Kosovo. And that's what I knew. That was the only thing I really knew about the military. And I was a journalist. I went to University of Texas and I started at a TV station in Austin, moved to San Angelo. And as part of my assignments, I was able to go to Kosovo a year after the war and I was able to cover our local troops who were stationed there. So I went to Camp Bond and I talked to them about their experience. And really at that point, what I felt was gratitude more than anything. So as my journalism career progressed, I moved to North Carolina. I moved to Eastern North Carolina and it was the beginning of the iraq war the iraq war started just three or four months after i got there i met a handsome guy at a bar as we do um (laughs) and everyone said whatever you do don't marry a marine and I, i didn't listen i didn't listen at all uh so i ended up marrying him and it's funny Total side story, but my my seven year old the other day heard me talking about how I was warned not to marry a marine, and he said, "You know, you should listen because they were trying to warn you. Marines, they like to argue and they like to talk about World War II too much."
1: <laughs> <laughs> did Dad, hear that?
0: <laughs> yeah, he did, and he was laughing because it's very true. But we, you know. We were starting our relationship. We got married. And then I was in this place where I didn't know anything about the military, but I was in a crash course because, you know, Camp Lejeune was the center for the deployments at the very beginning of the war. And it was also where all of the casualties were happening. So part of my job as a reporter for an ABC affiliate there was that I was that person who would knock on the doors and see if a spouse or a family wanted to talk about their loss, wanted to talk about that Marine that they remembered. And it was...
1: (sighs) I think people don't understand how difficult it is as a journalist to knock on someone's door in that situation.
0: It is... uh, I I would cry every day. I hated it so much. But at the same time, I kept doing it because... Those stories are so important. I mean, a lot of times people would just say, no, thank you. And I don't understand why you're here. That obviously happened. But sometimes it was, oh, thank you, because I want the world to know their story. I want to know what they did. I want to know what kind of, I want everyone to understand what kind of dad they were, what kind of husband they were. So I, I got to talk to a lot of people about their lives and about their experiences. One of the ones that I remember most was a woman named Janina Bits and her husband, Staff Sergeant Michael Bits, was one of the first Marines who was killed in the war. And I went to her house and I said, do you want to talk? And she said, no. And so I said, "Okay, well, here's my card if you ever do. And as I'm walking off, she lived in a trailer with her four young kids as I'm walking off some of the journalists from national and international news organizations were there and a photographer climbed up the side of her trailer and took a picture of her giving her kids a bath the day that she found out her husband was killed.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. Um, And it's different because when you're reporting in a community, you become a part of that community. But when you swoop in from one of the national organizations, you don't really, you're not there every day. So maybe you don't understand the intricacies of of everything, but it was terrible. And Janina called me not too long after that. And she wanted to talk about her husband, Michael, but she also said she wanted to do something about this because it was really bothering her that that happened And so she was the military spouse who started advocating for a 24-hour period before they would notify the press about the the casualties.
1: The family gets the notification and the press gets it.
0: Right. And that wasn't the case then. So she and I got to know each other over the years. She actually ended up marrying another Marine. She moved back to her home country of New Zealand and we're still in touch because Her story really meant so much to me and it inspired me. And I got to know her and her family and what they were going through. And there were a couple of families like that. There was another one named Jerry Ensminger, and he was there and he talked to me several times about his daughter who died due to cancer caused by water contamination at Camp Lejeune in the 80s. Well, all the way until now, he's been fighting and advocating for that, for families who went through that. And I saw him at the White House at the end of last year at the signing of the PACT Act. So some of those people I met and those stories really came full circle for me, both through getting to know them then and now my work at National Military Family Association. It's a you know community I care about. It's people I care about. And it's really what fuels me every day is uh, not my own personal military experience, because my husband, you know, he had a spinal injury, he was medically retired, he didn't even go to Iraq or Afghanistan. And he hates that. I don't hate that. I, I mean, I'm actually thankful for that. But it's, um, it's not my own personal military experience that inspires me. It's the experience of all of those people that I met along the way and that I continue to meet.
1: Yeah, what what you were saying just made me think about the idea. You know, the Vietnam War. I think it ended in nineteen seventy five, and you know, in between the period of the Vietnam War and the um, invasion of Afghanistan, you know, like we had military conflicts that were like a couple days, like Grenada in nineteen eighty three, and there was you know special operations stuff in Central America. And then, you know, what happened in the Balkans, in Kosovo, and Bosnia, was really sort of like an air war. And those were sort of like formative years for me. And I, I had a really good friend, one of my closest friends in high school. We went off to the same college and she decided to join the Marine Corps. And I think of the people who were in that spot, they were they were joining the military in a time of peace and prosperity. You could get a good career Chances are, if you ended up in conflict, it might have been an air war or a brief engagement. But they had sort of entered the military at a time where it looked, you know, the Cold War had ended, where it looked like we were going to have peace for a long time. And then all of a sudden, those families in 2001, when Afghanistan happened, and then Iraq in 2003, were thrust into 20 years of war that you couldn't have really anticipated. And, you know, I've never heard somebody say to me, this isn't what I signed up for. But I imagine that moment must have been, you know, they must have been filled with pride for the opportunity to help the country, but also for them and their families kind of shocked. That's not something that they had anticipated. And I just remember as those first casualties were coming in in 2002 and, around that time in 2001, I think there were some in late 2001, it was just shocking to be in those communities and see the see the pain. Was it hard for people in those moments in a way to kind of get thrust into something we never expected again, like we didn't expect another Vietnam?
0: Yeah, it was interesting because there were the people who joined the military just prior to 9-11. And then there was a whole nother group who saw 9-11 and were inspired to join because of that. They wanted to serve this country. And you're right, I remember in high school, uh, the only time I really encountered the military was when they'd come to our school to recruit. And the whole message was, uh, come to the military and you'll get free college, right? Right. What was the right. Whole stuff? right.
1: Occupational, excellent, excellent training.
0: Right. And that was it. It was never come to the military and you could be put in harm's way and it's really important work and you have a service to our country. The messaging has really changed. But while I think that a lot of the service members who sign up, know what they're getting into. And I don't want to say families don't, but you don't think about it to that extent. And when I ask my husband, why did you join the Marine Corps? It's because his grandfather served for, you know, decades in World War II. And, and, you know, he was so inspiring. And then his dad served, he was drafted during Vietnam era, but he's really inspired by that long and really dangerous military career that his grandfather had. And that's what attracted him to it. He wanted to do something great. He wanted to be a part of that group, uh, that small group that fights for our country. But that is not anything that I ever thought of. And it's also in a lot of cases, not what spouses think about. It's not what kids think about. You're thinking about. Oh, I'm in love with this great guy who wants to do wonderful things. You don't think, and this is going to define the next twenty plus years of my life, the rest of my life.
1: Right. I think about you know. So we had the. I think the. It was the last draft was in in Vietnam, and since then we've been uh, you know all volunteer military, and we're in a country of more than 330 million people. And only 2 million people serve. And, you know, I know that when you look at the total impact, when you look at retirees and families, you get, you know, well over 9 million impacted by that. But it's such a small percentage of the population that plays such a um, large role in protecting the country. And. You know, you know this as, as well as anyone. It's been in the news lately that there have been a lot of recruitment problems. And one of the things that people have said to me is, you know, one of, you know, a hurdle is obviously that people feel like you could actually end up in war. And some families may not be as comfortable with that as the volunteers. But I wonder whether there's an element of taking care of the families that sort of core, the sort of addressing some of those recruitment challenges?
0: So that is very much what we see. And it's what we do every day when we advocate for military families. There is no one who would sign up to purposely put their families in a bad position. No one would do that. And there are so many benefits that are always, you know, potentially on the chopping block. Everything is about balancing the budget and what do families really need. And that's where our voice comes in. And we're talking about those issues. When it comes to recruitment, we know that military members come from military families. It's that um, tradition of service. A lot of people who come from those families call it a family business, and they knew they were going to get in the family business. And we talk to military teens who tell us about all these hard times they've gone through the struggles they're facing to this day. And then a third of them tell us they still plan to serve. So there is that culture of service. But when people are looking uh, from the outside in, and they're trying to make a decision on is this something I want to do, people aren't just thinking about themselves, they're thinking about their families. Do I want to move my family every two to three years? How will I be supported when I do that? How will I, the spouse, be able to maintain a career? And not just because those are my hopes and dreams, but also because in today's America, it really does take two incomes. So many families are food insecure. So many families are struggling to find childcare to get the mental health care that they need and they're leaving their families they're leaving their communities so when that is the story it doesn't sound quite as attractive and i was at um i was at an event just recently where the department of defense and a lot of military leaders were saying that one of the ways that you could support recruitment is by telling your positive story telling your positive military family life story And I think that's really important, but we need to have more of those positive stories to tell.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah, I can think of,
1: you know, a very obvious one for me is, you know, an important thing, you know, when it comes to families is healthcare. I hadn't thought of the idea of career development. You know, my, my father, after Vietnam, ended up being a federal government employee, and you know we were we were lucky that my mother was a teacher so that could be transported almost anywhere but i didn't think of until you just said it then that notion of career development and other other benefits for spouses or families what do you think the most important things are to that the government or others can do to take care of military families
0: well there is a couple things we're working on on the front of military spouse employment and one of those is a work opportunity tax credit where we're encouraging businesses to hire military spouses. There's actually a bill right now, and we're hoping that it passes because there are you know different groups that you're incentivized to hire. One of them is veterans. We want to include military spouses. And when we talk about supporting families, it's in all the different ways. It's the community. It's the school system and the government it's also employers, it's nonprofits, This all of us working together. And there's a lot of ways that I've seen it done successfully, but we just need more of that. It takes all of us. When it comes to employment, there is a military spouse employment rate of about 25%. That is huge compared to the national average. And underemployment is huge as well. It's everyone is extremely overqualified and they're taking the positions that they get because they need to be able to support their families. So I would encourage businesses to hire a military spouse because I'll tell you what, anyone who can move, uproot their family time and time again, work under extreme stress because they know that they have a loved one in harm's way and they're dealing with all of the challenges of military life, I guarantee you they can do that job that you need them to do at your organization.
1: Yeah. And and one of the things, just in listening to what you said, the idea of remote work, now that that's become more adopted, I bet mm-hmm. businesses have, you know, can have less worry about the idea that you're investing in someone who's only going to be there for two years or, or whatever it is. It can open some of the doors and that people can get past some of those obstacles that they see that could be that could be powerful. I um one of the things, you know, you mentioned we were talking about how in the Vietnam era it was mostly wives. And one of the striking things for me is, you know, over the course of my lifetime, the military has changed. In general, more women are joining the military. There are even opportunities for them to be on the line in combat you look look at what's happening in ukraine right now and there's so many women who are in combat and certainly in the u.s military we've seen a lot of forward movement with that but you know when i was growing up you know it was don't ask don't tell when it comes to gays in the military you know we've had the introduction of same-sex marriage transgender people a lot of things that probably sort of have shifted the picture of what a military family is and also shifted what, you know, the Defense Department, like when it comes to health care or other things like that, or benefits, mm-hmm. it's really probably shifted what they have to do. Um, what's the change been like and how has the, the community been adjusting to it?
0: Yeah, it's uh, we call it modern military family life because families of the military are just as diverse as families in the general population. And that goes with everything. It goes their politics, their sexual orientation, their reasons to serve, whether they're a man or a woman, there are all these things that factor into who the members of our military are, and who their families are. And with that, not just in the military, but also in the general world, there just come other questions. I know that one of the things that we advocated for a while back had to do with IVF um, for those who were wounded in combat, but also for you know female service members. There are a lot of things that we have to look at and address, and it's not just us. it's it's all of America. And that's where we come in. You know, we accept, welcome, advocate for, and support any member of a military family. And um, and we also continue to shift and change our programs to make sure that we're in line and that we're serving that total population Uh, when families come to us and they say, hey, this is a shift that we're seeing. One example is entrepreneurship. When there are such issues with military spouse employment, a lot of spouses said, hey, we can do our own business and then we don't have that issue but they weren't eligible for our scholarships. So we changed that and we try to just represent and support families in all of the ways. And I can tell you that they will tell us if we're, if there's something we're not doing, we have such a powerful and vocal group of family members. We um, just last year brought bloom, which is an organization that was created by and for military teens into the nmfa family so they're now part of us here at national military family association and they are our they tell us what's happening before it happens you know how your kids know it's cool yeah your
1: early warning system
0: (laughs) that's what they are i mean it's everything from you need to be on be real to this is what's happening in in our schools where military teens are right now these are the things that we're struggling with and so like you said I think that's a great way to put it it's your early warning sign and it kind of gives us a preview of what's to come
1: Oh that's awesome that's awesome the um, one of the things that I I think about and you know sort of reading about the work that you all are doing is that you know one of the questions that I walked away with is what in the world? are the Public Health Service and the National Oceanic Mm -hmm. Atmospheric Administration um, doing. And I I did a lot of research and I was super surprised by how active groups like the Public Health Service are in serving and supporting the country. Could you tell me a little bit about the history of how they became a Part of the sort of broader military family?
0: Well, it's what it's what you just said, which is that all of the different ways that they're supporting, and they're not front and center because they're not a lot of organizations say we support the armed services. Well, we support all uniformed services because they all play a special role. And those services that you mentioned, NOAA and the public health service, They're so small. There aren't as many of them, but what they're doing is critical. I think we saw a lot of that during the COVID pandemic. It was, you know, public health service was front and center in a way that we hadn't seen them before. So just knowing that they play a critical role, their families play a critical role. And a lot of times they're not seen, they're not recognized. So we want to make sure that they are also cared for in that same way.
1: Yeah, I remember, I know a senior leader um, who is a part of the Defense Department, the Defense Health Agency's response to the COVID pandemic. And I, I had known her for about two years. And, you know, I was convinced she was in the Navy. I had convinced, I was convinced she was a Navy captain. And then recently, I realized she was in the public health service. But her job, her work, what she did, her demeanor, everything, her life story, um, sounded just like she had been in the Navy or she had been in the Army or any other role. And it was striking to me that, you know, not only the idea that the military plays a role, you know, you look at things like the Katrina disaster or any of these challenges we have domestically, they play this silent role in supporting the country. Like, I, I'll never forget, I was in Manhattan for 9-11 in one, of, you know, there were two moments that strike out strike out to me, or three moments, where I felt a great sense of peace. When the fighter jets first flew over my head and over Manhattan, the second one was in the evening when the train started running again, and the third one was when I was walking through the train station and there were National Guard members um, standing there and. You know, it's hard to even describe the comfort of each of those moments and to even think about the sacrifice of the fighter jet pilots whose families had no clue they would be in the air that day or the National Guard members who were just living their life and all of a sudden were called to New York in the moment and, you know, asked to be away from their family for um, for such a long time. I am... Um, and, and it made me think, like, what are we giving back to these people? And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story for me. You know, you hear about places like Camp Lejeune or Fort Bragg um, in the media or TV shows or whatever it was. Quantico is a, a common one. And I remember a couple of years ago going down to Quantico for a meeting. And I was there a little bit early. So I got in and it was a meeting at the FBI. And so I got in and I drove around the base and I went by the housing for the soldiers and also looked at some of the housing in the area because I was just getting a picture. And I was shocked, Bessa. I was shocked at what I saw. It was not like what I imagined. And are those areas that you think the schools, housing, the drinking water You know, because of course, you know, with my personality, I just started digging into it all. Are those areas that you think are important to address for families?
0: Oh, absolutely. Those are just basic needs. The roof over your head, the water you're drinking. You know, I was recently at a meeting with DHA where they were talking about all of the different types of exposures that a service member or a family might go through and just the cumulative impact those have on someone's life. And they were talking about things like burn pits in Iraq. I mean, we know that that is horrible, that exposure that you get when you're near a burn pit, but also right below burn pit on that list was mold in housing. It was water, like situation that just happened in Hawaii recently, or what happened at Camp Lejeune decades ago. Those things absolutely have to be addressed. If you can't drink your water or you can't know that you're going to sleep without being infected, what else can you even think about?
1: Yeah. And I think about things like the Flint water crisis in Michigan, you know, where there was great publicity over it. And, you know, as I learned more about what was happening in military housing, I wonder whether we have just somehow become a little immune to it as a broader public about, you know, not just the hardships of going to war, but some of those hardships of us as citizens, as taxpayers, as the people who elect elected leaders and then our elected leaders, of not really investing in some of those things. Is there something that like, we as citizens who are not a part of the the direct military family, but they're the ones who support and protect our families, is there something that we can do in terms of advocacy or something else that would benefit military families?
0: Yes, we love our civilian advocates because if you care and you understand, that even means more than if we as military families do because it shows that you see us and that you understand the sacrifices that are being made. This is going to sound really simple, but if you follow us, National Military Family Association, on Facebook – you will see or on Instagram or any of the social media channels, you will see information about the issues that we're working. You will see things that you can write your congress member about. I think one of the things that happens is when there are a lot of bad issues going on, if we're talking about housing and then we're also talking about food insecurity and we're talking about employment, there are so many different things that you could focus on, right? And sometimes we just look at maybe the worst thing, which right now, rightfully is food insecurity. If you can't feed your family, there's not much else that you can think about. But it's not far behind. And it might even be equal to think about mold in your house. You know, so many families during PCS, so PCS is when they move you to a new duty station. So you're moving your family across the country. So many families ended up in hotels this past summer because there were issues with their housing and they're living in a hotel for weeks and weeks, you know, family of five and they're in a one bedroom and they're trying to settle into a new community. So I think the important thing to do is to pay attention and there are so many things to pay attention to, but when you follow the organizations that are doing the work and they're reminding you of those things, it can be front and center in your mind too. And it's something that you can notice. And it can be something as simple as what you were talking about, talking to your neighbor who is a military family and talking to that military spouse and understanding what they're going through taking an interest, and then those opportunities to support will come.
1: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I think about the way that politicians work, you know, you get 500 emails from some constituency, let's say military families, saying we need to do something about water or housing. And it all, you know, that that thing they say, and you'll probably get this as a journalist, like, you know, three stories are a powerful trend that can be compelling, but around 500, it's just a land statistic that there's probably something to that letter email that comes in that says i am not a member of a military family but you know the military is important to this country and this is this problem that i'm seeing one of the things that i the flip side of the coin is i i imagine that there are probably some real joys and benefits to being part of a military family um In addition to all the downsides and, you know, if you were if you were sitting in front of a bunch of prospective military families making the case for the upside of it, what what would you tell them?
0: Well, one of the things that we hear over and over again from military teens is that opportunity to see the world. It's like you said, it really is a flip side of the coin, because in one sense, they're saying, hey, we're lonely, and we had to move away from our friends. And then in the next breath, they're saying, but I got to live in Japan. And let me tell you all the cool things about Japan. Or, you know, let me tell you about when we were in California. Families who are in the military are very worldly. It gives you opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have. And there are also some parts of military life that are just so memorable, so personal. And some of them may sound silly, but we recently asked military teens, what was, what's one of your favorite memories of military life? And one girl told us it's because her dad always cuts her birthday cake with a sword every time he's, you know, in town. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone related to that. They were like, yes, that type of thing. Um, even if it's, you know, like my seven-year-old said, telling us way too much about World War II, you learn so much being a part of a military family and, you know, that appreciation. And the other thing I will say is the community of military family members, you want to talk about someone you can call at two in the morning and they will show up for you, it's military families. It's uh, It's just part of the culture. So if you want great friends, if you want worldly kids if you want that feeling of service that you really can't get anywhere else there's something about knowing that you're doing a great thing for the community around you it also builds a lot of uh, great life skills for military kids and teens sometimes you know my husband coaches soccer and there will be a kid on the team who's just always on time they're always getting it done they work hard they're friendly to everyone and my kids will sometimes say, I bet that kid's a military kid because <laughs> they have those qualities that you gain by being exposed to being a part of our military community.
1: And that's great, too, that your kids take such pride in being a part of a uh, being a part of something, being a part of a military family. And I imagine, you know, people who grow up in military families with moves and other things like that. Probably have an easier time adapting. Probably have an easier time making new friends, or, mm-hmm. or you know, just opening more more doors. A, a resilience, I guess, is what I'm mean. using. Yes. Yeah, a resilience that you don't um, you don't normally see. So, if I were to make you president for a day.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: India had a great
0: day. Just one day. Okay, okay.
1: (laughs) Just one day. And let's assume you have a really compliant Congress. I don't know what's happened, but a really compliant Congress. Mm -hmm. What what would you like to change? Like, If I gave you a day to be president? (laughs) Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. I want our military families to have the benefits that they were promised and that they need to continue on in this military life. I want to make military life something that you don't have to pay for, but it's something that pays you. You know, you're doing a great service to our country. And if Congress could pass policies that take care of our families in the way that childcare is provided, there's food on the table. It's healthy and it's nutritious. When you need to make a doctor's appointment, you're able to make it. And also, I think Congress could do some work on educating the entire American public on the sacrifices made by military families, you know, to talk about it more often, to put it front and center, not on this day when I'm president, but in all the days in the future. Right.
1: I am, you know, it's been, I think, inspiring for me because I went from the point of sort of high school to You know, I I was exposed in some of my work to military families, but it was very, it was very sort of remote and distant. But, you know, recent work over the last five years has put me in contact with people in the military and their families every day. And one of the things that just strikes me is, you know, I am, I am inspired by them, you know, kind of shocked that I'm so inspired by them. But I'll, you know, I'll get invited to, let's say, a promotion ceremony or something like that. And I will meet somebody's spouse and kids. And as impressed as I am by their service member, I am totally impressed by their kids and their spouses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're often sort of like very smiling and cheery, but they're telling me about what their day to day is like, right? Not complaining. And I keep on thinking to myself. Like I don't understand how you are smiling with the toughest unpaid job I have ever heard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like uh, during the middle of COVID, I remember, um, you know, one of one of the people I had gotten to know, the lieutenant commander in the navy, was moving to um, Alaska for assignment, and his wife was working the logistics of traveling the United States, entering Canada, quarantining, moving all their things through multiple channels ensuring their kids got their health care appointments that they needed because this wasn't going to be like a two week process. It ended up being a six week process, you know, and she was on the phone with military folks. She was on the phone with state department folks, Canadian folks, um, companies. And I just thought like, how are you doing this all with such a smile? Um, mm-hmm. uh, do you think we could draw some inspiration just as people from military spouses and military families?
0: Oh, absolutely. I I get that inspiration every single day. There's a member of our leadership team who is a military spouse. She's one of the hardest people, hardest. She's not hard. She's a hardworking person. She's one of the hardest working people I know. And then you know what she does after she uh, works hard all day and does all the things for us? She goes and designs sets and costumes for her kids play for dozens of kids. And she's sending me these videos and I'm thinking, why don't you have a Tony Award? I mean, just absolutely <laughs> incredible. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they are also, if you want to get something done, ask a military spouse. So many of the family members who work at NMFA came here because we worked with them on something. Uh, we have a team member who couldn't get some specialized formula that she needed for her child and was spending tens of thousands of dollars of their own money that they didn't have to feed their child, came to us. We worked with her to advocate through TRICARE, and then not only got it covered, but during that meantime, she always tells a story of how a case of formula showed up on her doorstep. Oh wow! Wow. And it's families helping families and then wanting to give back. I I don't know how many interviews I've done for team with team members at NMFA that have said, I want to work here because you helped me and I want to do that for someone else. And, you know, you talk about the kids. This is another soccer story because soccer is life over here at our house, but my daughter, she'll play for different teams and she'll do different things. And she has one, a girl on her team who's a military kid, active duty, and moves all over the place. And she told me that one of the things she has loved and has learned from her is that this girl named Tegan will go up to the different team members on these brand new teams, wherever they are, and shake their hand and say, Hi, I'm Tegan. What's your name? And, you know, she's a 12 year old. It's just, she's so ready for life.
1: Oh, that's so awesome. I think that's a great place. To close, But I wanted to give you a chance to see if you had any closing remarks or anything that you want to share.
0: Now, I just want to thank you, Jason, for shining a light on this important topic. You mentioned the small number of family members who serve with their service member. You know, it's, it's 1% of our population, but that 1% plays such a big role and they do it for all of us every single day. So just noticing them, seeing them supporting the families in our community. And like I said, engaging with groups like ours, National Military Family Association, so that when issues do come up and we could really use your help and we could use that powerful civilian voice that you have to support the cause, we would love to have you in our community.
1: Thank you all for this conversation with Bessa Pinchotti. We're looking forward to being with you again on the next episode. I'm Jason Blair and this is The Silver Linings Handbook.